Hey, this is Colin Campbell from The Insider. You may have noticed that we haven't uh, been dropping new podcasts the last couple of weeks as we get into the holidays. We're taking a short break over the holidays this year from uh, producing our politics podcast uh, to revamp it into the new year. So uh, look forward to seeing a new format a little bit and uh, some new uh, aspects of the podcast coming in January. Uh, But in the meantime, we wanted to give you another chance to listen to an event I hosted for The NC Insider this past week uh, looking at healthcare in the legislature legislature coming up in 2021, the uh, preview event that we had for that. So without further ado, we'll uh, introduce you to that event, starting with a message from the sponsor of the event, the North Carolina Healthcare Association. Hey, this is Steve Lawler with the North Carolina Healthcare Association, and I want to welcome you to the Insider 2021 Policy Preview on Healthcare. It's an exciting time in our state. It's an important time in healthcare, and I can't think of a better way to, uh, to engage by having these kind of conversations. So these are unprecedented times. These are times where everyone plays a role from our elected officials down to every member of our community. So as we think about what's going on throughout our state and what's going on with the pandemic, there are certainly things that our elected officials can do to help support hospitals and health systems. So first it's work on bipartisan efforts to develop policy and or support packages that make it possible for our healthcare heroes to take care of their patients and their communities. An example of this was the $25 million uh, targeted legislation that allowed the North Carolina Healthcare Foundation to purchase PPE for membership throughout the state. And that has helped shore up our supplies as we take care of patients and take care of community. Other things they can do is to make it easy for hospitals and health systems to, to flex and to have the flexibility to expand or to add new staff to be able to take care of patients, families, and communities. We also believe that expanding coverage for every North Carolinian, also an important thing that uh, a bipartisan effort can yield. One of the other things that is really exciting that the association is taking on is we're working with our membership to think about caring for our community as our patient. We started this work by issuing a statement on equity, you know, that really kind of put out there that any kind of racism or injustice or inequity or barriers that marginalize our neighbors and other North Carolinians is in fact a public health crisis. And we should be looking for every means possible to create a more equitable society so that each and every North Carolinian has the opportunity to reach their full health potential. And when we do that, everyone benefits. We have a healthier state, we have a healthier workforce, which means folks are at work. We have a healthcare system that doesn't require the kind of subsidy and cross subsidy that we have now where those of us who are blessed to have insurance help participate in covering those that don't. Again, thank you for joining us on the Insider 2020 policy preview on healthcare. It's a great start for a conversation. It's a great start to work together and it's a great start to roll up our sleeves and do everything we can to make North Carolina a better place for all. Thank you, Steve. I'm excited to hear from you again uh, on that, but uh, I think we were fixed with a technical difficulty. So let's go ahead and meet our panel for the discussion. Senator Joyce Kravick is a Republican from Forsyth County. She chairs the Senate Health Care Committee and the Health and Human Services Appropriation Committee. Outside of politics, she owns a real estate development company. Representative Gail Adcock is a Democrat from Wake County and a member of the House Health Committee. She's a nurse practitioner who until recently served as the chief health officer for Sass Institute. Sue Ann Forrest is the director of legislative and political action at the North Carolina Medical Society, where she's worked since 2016. The Medical Society, if you're not familiar, uh, represents thousands of doctors across the state. And last but not least, Tom Fetzer is a lobbyist with Fetzer Strategic Partners, where his clients include some of the state's largest hospitals and insurance companies. He's also a former Raleigh mayor and a former member of the UNC Board of Governors. Thanks all of you for joining us this afternoon. Uh, we'll go ahead and get started with the topic that, of course, is on everybody's mind these days, COVID-19. The current pandemic is going to cast a big shadow, I think, on next year's legislative session. So what actions, both in terms of policy and in terms of funding, do lawmakers need to take to address the impacts of COVID-19. And for that, uh, let's start with Senator Kravick. Thank you, Colin. Thank you for having us. Um, This is challenging times. There's no questions about that. 
Um, we had some great policy initiatives that came along with the COVID packages in our last session. And I, we hear that we're going to get some more COVID funding from the federal government. So if that happens, that will be a real help to um, deliver the care that we need here in North Carolina. And as we said, these are challenging times. And, um, you know, some of the rules have just had to go out the window because first and foremost, the legislature is committed to um, improving access to care in North Carolina, particularly our rural communities. And we've been we've been laser focused on that for the last few sessions. And we're going to continue to do that. Um, even with the challenges that we're facing, we're going to continue to move to improve access to those rural areas and to improve access to care for everyone. And I think we've made some some really good steps in the right direction. And um, I think we'll continue to do that in the legislature. All right, thanks. Uh, we'll go next to Representative Adcock. Uh, your thoughts on uh, COVID-19 response and what needs <clears throat> to happen come January? Well, I'd like to see a continuation of the great bipartisanship that was shown in the four COVID-19 work groups that Speaker Moore established uh, in my six years in the General Assembly. I think it was the finest example of the two parties pulling together to do what was right for our state, in particular, increasing the amount of testing available to the most vulnerable uh, citizens, to removing uh, barriers to providers who are trying to actually be there for their communities by waiving some requirements that uh, in normal times, uh, you know, we would certainly enforce, but during these, the time of a pandemic, when it's really an emergency, to realize that it's more important to have the time, the bandwidth, and the uh, complete focus on the care of the patient versus uh, some paperwork. I think those were some of our uh, finest hours. Thanks. Uh, to go back to, to Senator Kravik on this, um, I know that uh, we're, we're sort of hoping to see federal stimulus uh, money come in and uh, the legislature being able to allocate some of that. Uh, given that the uh, state the government does have a decent surplus uh, going into the new year, do you see any need, uh, any uh, advantage to doing any sort of state-based uh, recovery package related to COVID? We haven't really had a chance to uh, discuss all of that at this time. So, um, you know, we'll be up to my colleagues and, um, you know, everyone will be um, contributing into that conversation. So I'm not certain what steps will be taken. Um, I know we have a lot of work to do. We've got a lot of things on our plate. Um, we've got a lot of good policy ideas that we are uh, hoping that we'll be able to get initiated. And um, the governor has um named a council that uh, I'm a member of that council as well. And we are meeting regularly. Um, we met last week and then we meet again next week uh, to come up with some policy ideas. So, you know, everything is on the table. We're discussing what all of us can do together to improve access to care to our citizens in North Carolina. Representative Adcock, are you hearing anything on the Democratic side as far as a, a push for any sort of uh, state-level um, recovery package to, to come through either from the governor's office or from the House? Uh, I would I would say I have not at this point, but I do think that there's a, a shared concern across both caucuses to help businesses of all kinds. And being a family nurse practitioner myself for the last 33 years, I would say that most practices are small businesses um, and they have been hit hard by a huge demand, a surge of patients who need their help right now uh, that cannot be put off. And um, so anything we can do to help providers continue to be there through these stressful times for their patients so that we can keep our community as a whole healthy is something that I think both sides can agree on. And I feel that the governor would be on board as well. Sue Ann Forrest, are you hearing much from the medical provider community as far as any needs they see uh, related to uh, COVID-19 recovery in the coming months? Of course, uh, Colin, that's a great question. I've heard more from our members this past year than any other time um, during my, my time here at the North Carolina Medical Society. And I first want to say that we are incredibly grateful, much to Representative Adcock's point she was just making, for the support that the General Assembly has given um, independent providers, particularly those who are working in those rural and vulnerable committees, both 
in PPE funding, as well as independent uh, practice relief. And we have been able to utilize that and distribute it to those really high need areas. And I think we have a lot of success stories of being able to keep those practices afloat. I think one big concern from our members moving forward as it relates to the pandemic is telehealth and how we're going to utilize and reimburse for telehealth in the long term. Many of our practices have made the financial investment, um, which is significant um, in investing in this technology. And they want to be able to ensure that patients can utilize this long term. So I think that is really key of what we're going to do with telehealth and telemedicine moving forward. Right. Uh, Tom Fetzer, uh, any thoughts from the particularly the, the hospital and insurance worlds about uh, needs for, for COVID-19 uh, relief or, or legislative action in the months ahead? Yes, Colin. Uh, thank you. And I'm honored to join this uh, August group as the only low-life lobbyist invited to attend and, and especially um, uh, to be with uh, Senator Crawick and Representative Adcock, two of the most passionate and knowledgeable legislators, not only in North Carolina, but, but anywhere in the country. So um, I think COVID will forever change the way we think uh, about our workforce, about the way we think about education, and I think it will forever change healthcare. And uh, I think some of the things we've learned from COVID is that we can be more agile than we have been. And it's also shown us that we can work together. Uh, as a result of COVID, you've got insurers, providers, um, hospitals, uh, provider networks working together to come up with solutions. Uh, one of the things that two of my clients have participated in, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield and Wake Med, have partnered with six other major hospital systems uh, to, to reduce costs uh, and to go to a value-based care system. Uh, one of the things that North Carolina could do is, is re relieve some of the restrictions on expanding uh, value-based uh, healthcare uh, approaches uh, to all insurance uh, plans. They're, they're currently, it's, it's limited as to how far that can be uh, administered. Uh, and the other thing I think that's, that's really important is um, 23 cents of every healthcare dollar is consumed in pharmaceuticals. And we've got to do something about uh, the exploding costs uh, in pharmaceuticals. In, in just the first half of 2020, um, there were 4,400 <coughs> increases in prescription medications by big pharma and only 96, uh, or excuse me, only about 400 uh, cost decreases. So that's 96 cost increases for every one uh, decrease. Um, the profits of pharma companies are outstripping the other 357 non-pharma companies on the S&P 500. Um, and it, this is just one example. In, in the United States, our taxpayers um, support 85% of the cancer research in the world and yet Americans pay 50 to 100% higher uh, costs for cancer drugs. So we've got a pharma, pharmaceutical costs are the big cost increase driver in healthcare. And I think we've got to do something to address that. Tom brought up some interesting points there. Um, if uh, Representative Adcock or Senator Kravik, if you'd like to respond a little bit there. Uh, may I do that? Go ahead. Um, so I was really taken with, well, all of, of Tom's remarks are right on target, but I was really taken with the comments about telehealth. I'm going to tell you that this is um, a, a disruptive innovation that that couldn't be stopped, and I believe the toothpaste is out of the tube with it. Uh, patients have come to expect to be able to get certain healthcare services through telehealth. I want to give a shout out to all of our insurers in the state who stepped up with reimbursement parity for telehealth visits, even for providers like my practice that did not have all, uh, every, the, the entire platform in place to, to meet all the specs that would have been required pre-COVID. This has been a huge benefit to patients, a huge benefit to providers. Uh, there's just no way to overestimate uh, the difference that the ability to provide care this way has uh, provided. And because of that, because of now this in greater demand for the use of uh, broadband for not just healthcare, but also education and economic development, it just begs the question of what our state is going to do about expanding rural uh, broadband across the state equally. Because we, we continue to now have uh, an even bigger case for the haves and the have-nots when it comes to internet connection. And we just can't have that. Uh, we also can't expect our hospitals, both the larger ones, but particularly the rural ones, to be able to provide robust 
uh, quality, uh, uh, outcome-based care in their communities using telehealth if they don't have uh, high-speed internet. So that's just something that is critical and top of mind, I think, to all of us. I was very appreciative that he brought that out in his remarks. And so Colin, if, do you want to add anything on that topic? Go ahead, Dutch. Go ahead, Tom. If I may, um, Representative Badcock makes a great point. When, when the insurers um, expanded um, coverage, uh, par coverage parity to telehealth visits, they saw a doubling. Just in one month from mm -hmm. February to March this year, they saw a doubling in telehealth visits. Mm -hmm. uh, I recently read where, where Duke Healthcare had a thousand telehealth visits in one day. So this is obviously um, a new tier of service that the customers are going to demand and they're increasingly comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And it can dramatically increase access to healthcare and also drive down costs at the same time. And that is something we should all be celebrating and trying to uh, make more, um, you know, affordable and, and profitable and, uh, and accessible uh, in North Carolina. Senator Kravik, any thoughts on the top one? Yes, I'll just add to that. Uh, great points from both of my colleagues there. Um, Tom, the pharmaceutical prices that you were talking about are just staggering staggering that we have had these kinds of increases that are driving some of our our um, some of our health costs just unbelievably skyrocketing and you that's a great point that you pointed that out absolutely broadband access there aren't too many bright lights in this covid pandemic but one of them is the exposure of what we really are lacking in North Carolina. That has been a good thing that we are aware of all of these things. And it has driven the telehealth that we've been um, just sort of nibbling at the edges of for a number of years. And we all of a sudden have had to open up and say, okay, um, we've got to provide care to these people and this is how we have to do it during these uh, times of a pandemic. So um, that was one of the bright lights of it, that we have, we have seen what we can do, but we also see what we have to do going forward because the broadband issue is a tremendous problem for a lot of North Carolina. Our children are falling so far behind simply because many of them just don't have access to broadband, so they're not able to keep up with their studies. So uh, some great points brought out. Thank you. Yeah. Sticking with broadband for a second, uh, do you see needs uh, to expand the, the current great grant program for broadband? Is that working well? Or are there other policy and, and funding tools that uh, the legislature can uh, use to, to try to make sure that everyone does have that access to broadband? Well, we're going to continue to look for answers. Um, the great program has been has been good. Uh, the problem is that we have so many rural areas that are very scattered. And even with all of the progress that we've made, um, there's just not accessibility in these very rural areas where neighbors are miles apart, but we still have children there who need to be able to access the internet. We have uh, patients there who need to be able to access telemedicine. So we have to continue to look for ways to do that. You know, we've done the satellites on the buses. Those have been great. They have helped many areas, but those particularly far rural areas, um, oftentimes can't even get to the site where the, um, where the satellite uh, broadband access is. So we've still got a lot of work to do, but yeah, the, the great program is, um, has been a, a wonderful thing, but we've still got a lot of work that we've got to do. Sue Ann, obviously the doctors and providers have been on the front lines of trying to expand telehealth in, in recent months. Uh, what sort of challenges are you seeing most and where do you think the legislature could step in and uh, make that easier as this becomes a service that becomes much more common even post-pandemic? Yeah, the North Carolina Medical Society and the North Carolina Medical Society Foundation have been incredibly supportive of the GREAT program. It's actually been on our legislative priority list for, I think, the past two legislative sessions. So this isn't a new topic area for us. What I'm hearing most from our, from our members is not just the impact that it makes on health, but like uh, Senator Kravik and uh, Representative Adcock have mentioned the impact that it has in the education sector, the business sector, um, which I would argue does relate to the overall health and well-being of our communities. Um, so no specific examples of areas, but I do think and hope uh, that the legislature will prioritize the grant program and maybe think about some creative 
and innovative solutions to helping uh, increase that access, particularly in those rural areas. Because again, I think our uh, physician and PA community feels strongly that um, telehealth has helped them be able to continue to see patients in this pandemic. And I think it's a tool that we should utilize moving forward too. Shifting gears now to another hot topic, uh, Medicaid expansion, obviously expanding Medicaid coverage it's going to continue to be a heated and fairly divisive issue uh, between political parties in our state. Uh, Senator Kravik, do you see any potential for uh, compromise on this subject, or do you think expansion is going to continue to be something the Senate's likely going to have to oppose? Um, that has been a very hot topic, very controversial topic for a long time. Um, right now, we're in the middle of a Medicaid transformation. It's been delayed. Um, my, my thoughts are that we don't even need to discuss expansion until we get through the transformation. Um, it was supposed to have gone live uh, last October. Um, it didn't happen. Uh, it is now scheduled to go live July of 21. And um, I th I, I'm hoping that uh, that's going to happen. I, I know they're moving forward toward that. But I know at the last minute, uh, last session before it was to go live at the very last minute it was delayed um, of course we've had a lot of problems as we all know that we've had to deal with but um i don't think uh, and i hear people say well we can walk and chew gum at the same time i'm not so sure we can do transformation and expansion at the same time we certainly don't need to be doing that so um my thoughts are we get through the transition we see how smoothly that goes. Um, that is going to improve access tremendously, we believe. That was the reason for doing it. That was the reason for planning for it for five years. And, um, and the department had plenty of time to prepare, knowing that go-live date, and not yet it still didn't happen. So I don't know how we can even think that we can add, I think the governor's uh, proposal is 600,000 people to the system. Um, we need to prove that we can handle Medicaid trans transformation without um, without burdening the system too much and uh, and see what kind of improvements we make. Um, we I'm convinced it's going to make it's going to improve a lot of access uh, right now. The, the um, choice of providers is the emergency room for many of our Medicaid patients. Uh, we don't believe that'll be the case when we go into managed care. We think that those, managed, those PHPs are going to make certain that those uh, Medicaid recipients are getting the care they need without going to the emergency room. They'll be able to see their docs on a regular basis. They'll be in communication with those patients. And um, I think it's going to be, I think we're going to see a huge improvement in our access. And uh, for me, I, I, I really don't want to talk about Medicaid expansion until we get that done and we do some of the other things that we've been trying to do for so long that are going to improve our access and then see what we need to do. So once that process ends up and uh, we get to a successful transformation, do you think that's a, a topic you'd be willing to revisit? We can certainly discuss it at the time when we see what's, uh, you know, what's happening in that, in that arena. Uh, I just think we need to get through that first and we need to implement some of these other ideas. Um, for some time, I've been looking at some targeted um, Medicaid expansion for new mothers, for example, for um, mothers that um, are in substance abuse treatment. Um, they, if they lose their child, they lose their, uh, their Medicaid. Um, I'm working on a bill to make certain that she's able to stay in treatment um, and we can reunite that family. Um, there's just so many things that we can do in that Medicaid space without, um, and the only, the only conversation that we've had about Medicaid expansion is to 600,000 people. Um, only about 200,000 of those are actually people that we consider in the gap. Many of those people um, that the governor's plan would plan to bring in are people who already have insurance on the exchanges in many cases with very, very little contribution on their part. So they have access. So we're going to be removing people from the private healthcare market and putting them on Medicaid. That just doesn't make any sense. We'll also be picking up the tabs for some businesses. 
Um, I just don't think we need to be paying for Walmart employees for their insurance. Walmart offers a plan. The employee has to contribute a little, but like every other employer, um, you know, it's a, it's a shared plan and the employer pays most of it. There's so many things we need to look at without saying we're going to just open it up and expand it to everyone that we think should have it, um, even though they already have insurance in the private market. Um, that just isn't good policy to me. Representative Adcock, if you want to respond to that and also give me a sense for whether uh, you see any grounds for compromise in the House, uh, particularly with Representative Lambeth and some of the others who have been uh, a little bit more willing to, to consider uh, some sort of Medicaid expansion uh, in that chamber. Thank you, Colin. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about this uh, actually uh, incredibly important core issue for the General Assembly. Um, I would like to say that uh, my House colleagues on both sides of the aisle have spent a lot of time talking about what to do about uh, the huge number of citizens that do not have access to health insurance. And I believe there is some appetite in the House to do something about this. I. I would, you know, I can, I hear um, the arguments about trying not to do two huge projects at one time. I, I can understand that except for the fact that our state is in desperate uh, economic and uh, a desperate economic and health situation because of the 600,000 or so people who have no access to health insurance. This is an economic drag on our hospitals, particularly our small rural hospitals, the impact on individuals and families who have to delay uh, routine health care, much less health care that could turn out to be life-saving for them, is it's just difficult for me to get my hands around not going for everything we need to do. And I'll give you an example. So I'm a family nurse practitioner. If I have a patient who has hypertension and diabetes, you know, I don't, it's unethical for me to say I'll treat your hypertension and not your diabetes because it's too hard to do both of those things. When in reality, if I only tackle one, you might die of the other. And, and I feel like that's the situation our state is in. Medicaid transformation is very important. And, and, and the timeline for this needs to be adhered to. But I don't think we can wait to to meet the healthcare needs and the economic needs of our state by delaying Medicaid expansion once again. And I do believe that we have members of the House who feel very similarly. We may have different ideas about how to get there, but we believe we need to get there. And I look forward to working on this again this session. Uh, we're going to move on in just a minute, but I did want to give uh, Tom and Sue Ann an opportunity to jump in on this and if, whether there's any uh, potential you see for uh, helping to, to broker some kind of compromise on the expansion issue. Sure. I'd, I'd love to take that if that's okay, Colin. I think we have a really great opportunity here in North Carolina to create an innovative solution that is driven by all sides of the aisle here in North Carolina. And I know that the Medical Society is really excited about working on this topic. I think we've already seen some proposals of compromise solution like um, healthcare for working families, as well as a bill that Senator Kravik sponsored last, uh, last cycle on uh, small business healthcare. So I think there's some really creative ways that we can address this problem, but it's gonna take some conversations like the one that we're having today uh, to really get moving forward on a solution. But I do know that our members feel strongly and the data shows that more insurance access and more insurance coverage leads to better health outcomes. So if we can keep patients out of the emergency room and utilizing the emergency room for non-emergency care or care that could have been prevented in a primary care setting, I think we'll get better health, health outcomes. And that I think should be a goal of everybody and something that everybody can get behind. Tommy, you want to jump in real quickly? I will, Colin. Uh, as in all policies, politics is a driving force. And, and after a tumultuous election nationally, here in North Carolina, we had remarkable stability. Uh, Governor Cooper and Senator Berger and Speaker Moore are still the prime players. Um, and the first thing they have to do is to figure out how to get a budget passed for the first time in three years. Uh, and I actually think that if Governor Cooper had not held uh, the budget hostage to his particular version of Medicaid expansion, 
we, we would have had two budgets and we would also have had some movement on Medicaid expansion because I do believe there is some interest in both chambers of, of finding a way to go forward to expand healthcare without accepting skyrocketing costs. And the Republican resistance is based on their experience in rapidly and exponentially escalating unchecked Medicaid costs uh, in the decades uh, prior to their becoming majority in both chambers in 2011. And so uh, I think they're willing to have a conversation, but somehow we've got to figure out a way uh, to make the cost scenario not become uh, cataclysmic for the people of North Carolina while we're expanding healthcare coverage. Great. Thanks for that. We're going to give our main panel a quick break for a few minutes and bring them back for some other hot topics in just a moment. But we want to turn our attention real quick to another important topic this year. While 2020 is going to be remembered certainly as the year of COVID, there's also been a renewed interest in racial equity issues. And for hospitals, the two topics do seem to overlap. So next up, we're going to talk to Phyllis Wingate, a retired healthcare executive who served as the Northern Division president for Charlotte-based Atrium Health. Uh, she's going to talk to us a little about what hospitals are doing to address disparities in healthcare delivery and outcomes. Phyllis, thanks for joining us. Uh, to start off, I uh, wanted to get your thoughts on why racism should be considered a public health issue and how looking at it that way differs from looking at disparities based on poverty levels or any other uh, ways you might break down the data. Hi, Colin. And uh, as the other panelists have said, I'm happy to be able to join this conversation um, representing the Hospital Association and um, the Healthcare Association and its foundation. We've been talking about racism um, at the Healthcare Association and what our public health experts have uh, helped us to understand is that to be a public health crisis, you have to meet three criteria. Uh, one of those criteria is that uh, it has to, the crisis has to impact a large uh, group of people. The second is that it has to threaten the health of that group of people over the long term. And the third is that the solution to the crisis requires large scale um, implementation uh, or solutions. So racism meets all three of those criteria. I think when we uh, think about it as individuals, we think about it as our, our feelings one person to another person, but in the space of public health um, policy and a public health crisis, we should think about it more as a group and the impact that structural racism and unconscious bias has on a group of, uh, of individuals. I think it's different from disparities in that, in my mind, disparities is the outcome and racism is the root cause. And so if we wanna get at disparities, we have to tackle uh, structural racism. Uh, you've had a very long career um, in uh, hospitals at a, at a high level. Have you witnessed these issues personally in, in your years as a hospital executive? Well, the answer to that would be yes. Uh, but sometimes you don't understand things uh, right in the moment or name them in the moment. And you have to look at them in the rear uh, view mirror. So um, I think I would say I'll give you a couple of examples of this that I understand better by looking at them in the rear view mirror. The first would be uh, my first job in uh, healthcare was the uh, president of a 104 bed hospital in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, this was a new hospital with uh, state of the art equipment. It was located in the east end of uh, Richmond, Virginia in an underserved area, primarily served minority uh, individuals. And the medical staff was primarily a group of minority physicians, really well-trained, all-American trained. Um, it was managed by Hospital Corporation of America, one of the largest, probably best-run healthcare uh, systems in the country. And Hospital Corporation of America owned uh, a number of other hospitals in Richmond that were located in primarily white suburbs. The issues that I had to deal with in my hospital uh, were very different the health status of the patients coming to my hospital, coming to the physician offices in our community were very different than the colleagues, um, than my colleagues' hospitals in the white suburbs. And what I uh, learned early on in my career was that even for, say, uh, minority physicians, uh, they had difficulty, uh, even if they were equally trained, getting into healthcare plans. If they were assigned white patients, often those white patients would 
once they found out they were a minority physician, moved to another practice. So uh, you see um, the unconscious bias and the structural racism that uh, are results from that when you're uh, in a position where you're having to make uh, policy and administrative leadership dis- uh, positions in an organization like that organization. The second um, example, I would say, um, I also worked for another organization. Uh, This was at the time where the IOM report on disparities uh, was being published, and it was a we were starting a national conversation on that. Uh, Being a part of the senior leadership team, I uh, proposed that we do a study on the disparities in um, uh, uh, cardiac care uh, within our medical group. And the members of the senior leadership team asked, you know, why would you want to do that type of a study? We don't have any disparities in our um, care to patients. Um, you know, we take care of all patients the same. That's a part of our mission statement. And I share that to say that I truly believe that my colleagues believe that. And it's a great example to me of uh, a misunderstanding of structural racism and unconscious bias. Uh, by well-meaning individuals, uh, and and these individuals sit all across our systems and, and, and at the policy level. And I guess the last would be on a personal level. I grew up in rural North Carolina. My father died of a heart attack at 53. He had gone to see a white physician on that Friday, um, was diagnosed with uncontrolled hypertension. He was sent home. He died on Sunday of a heart attack. And I firmly believe that had he been seen by a minority physician or had he been a white male, that he would have been treated more aggressively for his hypertension. So, yes, in my career, I have seen um, the impact of racism um, and unconscious bias in in, in many uh, areas. Why do you think it's important for the NC Healthcare Association to be jumping in and taking a leading role in driving the, the conversation and action around these issues? I think the Healthcare Association is probably best positioned because it represents hospitals, all 130, 135 hospitals across North Carolina, and they're sponsoring organizations. And the Hospital Association is a non judgmental convener of many people uh, across the continuum of care, as well as stakeholders who are interested in the health status of North Carolinians. Uh, They can convene and bring uh, people together to start these conversations and influence policies that are important to solutions in this area. Also, for a long time, the Healthcare Association has been the collector of data related to hospitals, uh, starting with financial data related to hospitals, but also over the years, including quality data and patient safety data. And they have the infrastructure and the expertise to build a data platform that will help us understand uh, this issue better and understand how we can find solutions to it better. They also have the ability to share best practices across all of these organizations, uh, and they have the ability to influence policy We have great uh, relationships with many partners throughout the state, the legislative partners, foundations, uh, providers across the continuum. So I don't know of another organization that has as broad a a reach that has as much influence on the multiple stakeholders that are involved with improving the health status of all North Carolina citizens and and the healthcare association. Have you seen any best practices so far that uh, could be good examples for healthcare providers addressing this issue? And and where do you think more study is needed uh, now, particularly that the hospital association is involved? Uh, I think the um, healthcare organizations are working internally and externally on this issue. And and there are some obvious uh, best practices that are emerging. Uh, Internally, I think many uh, organizations are setting up population health departments, they're recruiting uh, diversity and inclusion uh, officers, they're educating their workforce and their providers on uh, unconscious bias. Externally, there is a lot of innovation, uh, including uh, healthcare organizations buying real estate and, and providing no interest loans to individuals in minority communities. There's an example up in Appalachia where 
the um, uh, hospital built a walking trail so that people in that community could get to the hospital easier. They're converting non uh, or underutilized assets into wellness centers or uh, other types of uh, organizations in rural communities that meet those community needs. So there's a, a, a number of examples of best practices and the hospital association is um, busy trying to make sure that we that they gather that information on best practices and that they are shared across the state. Any data you think that still needs to be collected to really get a handle on the issue? There's lots of data already. I don't think we need to collect any more data to uh, make the case that this is an issue. Uh, I do think that data is needed to be able to help us make smart decisions about where to begin this, to this work. Uh, it's a lot of work to be done, and I think data is needed to be able to measure the success of our interventions. Um, that data needs to be collected uh, by a neutral party, uh, I think, and it needs to be um, protected, um, and it needs to be uh, shared in a way that uh, is instructive to us being able to tell whether the interventions that are being made are going to be successful. All right. Thanks, Phyllis, for that. Um Really great insights on a really, really important topic uh, concerning healthcare going forward. Uh, joining us back from our final segment of today's event, Thank we'll turn you. back to our panel, uh, Senator Joyce Kravick, Representative Gail Adcock, Sue Ann Forrest of the NC Medical Society and lobbyist Tom Fetzer. Uh, this segment, I want to get a little bit into some of the uh, nitty gritty uh, regulatory issues that the legislature is almost certainly going to be grappling with, uh, starting with uh, what's sort of a perennial one certificate of need. Uh, those for those who aren't involved uh, in the issue you know it well, are the regulations that sort of determine where healthcare facilities can be built. Um, it's been a perennial topic of the legislature as to whether that should be deregulated uh, and have some more sort of free market approaches uh, to that particular aspect of healthcare expansion. But uh, so far, not much has changed. Uh, Senator Kravick, do you plan to pursue changes to the system again this year? I know you've been a, a key sponsor of that legislation in the past. And what would make you optimistic that that could uh, pass the legislature this time? Um, I think that we, we will have uh, some form of reform. I just want to give you an example of a recent, um, a recent uh, issue. One of our rural hospitals that is in, in trouble, they're uh, getting ready to close because they're uh, financially, they just can't hold on any longer. Um, there was a purchaser wanting to purchase the hospital um, in a rural community. Um, they could not use the hospital for what, and I don't remember what they wanted to use it for, what their intent was, um, maybe cancer or something, I can't remember. But because another hospital had a certificate of need in that area, they were not able to do it. That certificate of need, this particular entity had held for years and had never exercised it. Um, we have to have some reform in the certificate of need space. It is outdated. Um, North Carolina is the fourth most regulated state in the country. We regulate 28 services. Um, there are several studies out there that say that would be one of the uh, best ways that we could reduce costs and improve access to healthcare in North Carolina because we are so restrictive. I think New York, uh, New Jersey, and maybe Hawaii or somewhere I mean, nobody in our in our geographical area, even close to us, on um, on the regulations that we have on certificate of need. So I think it's absolutely necessary that we look at some kinds of reform to our certificate of need um, space in North Carolina, and I think it's going to make a huge difference. And one thing I just want to back up to uh, Colin for just a second, if I may. Uh, Sue Ann mentioned the. Um, Small Business Healthcare Act that I sponsored last session. Um, thank you for bringing that up, Sue Ann. I, that is one of the best pieces of legislation that I think we have done in North Carolina in a long time. Huge support for that bill. The business community, the chamber, um, the, I don't know anybody who was opposed to it. Um, in the end, I, there was some opposition at first, but we worked out all the details and it was very, very popular. It was estimated that that bill was going to bring 100,000 people from the uninsured roles to the insured roles. Um, that's huge. That is huge. And it's going to reduce costs for all of those small businesses. 
Um, it was stopped by the Department of Insurance because there is another state where there is a challenge on a lawsuit. I'm going to be advocating uh, to the insurance commissioner that we go ahead and roll that out. Um, we don't know what the court's going to do. It may be years before that decision is made. North Carolina could already be offering low-cost insurance to a lot of employers that they would be able to cover their employees. So I'm going to be advocating very heavily for that as well. Tom, you represent the, some of the hospitals on this issue. Uh, do you see any version of certificate of need changes that uh, the hospital community would be able to support? I know there's been a lot of opposition in the past, uh, or is there a case to be made that the status quo is working well and should be kept? Well, I don't think any, anything would anybody would say that status quo in any area of healthcare is, is going to work in the future. Um, but hospitals work under a peculiar set of circumstances. You know, we use the word free market a lot, but hospitals do not work in a free market. They were required by the federal government to admit and stabilize any patient who comes to their door, regardless of their ability to pay. So let's assume for a moment that um, orthopedic surgeons get a CON to operate a standalone ambulatory surgery center in Raleigh. Um, they can charge less for that operation than the hospital can because a hospital payer mix is one third private insurance, one third Medicare, Medicaid, and one third no pay at all, which means that two thirds of the, of the procedures, uh, they, get, they get reimbursed less than what it actually costs. Uh, so the orthopedic surgeons can make more money and they can charge less for that surgery, but they're not open 24 seven. They don't have an emergency room and they get to pick their payer mix. So if we're gonna do this and make it fair for everybody, if you want to reform CON and allow different uh, medical practitioners to open up their own mini hospital, then they have to be required to stay open 24 seven. They have to run an emergency department. They have to accept any patient and they, they have to accept any patient regardless of their, of their ability to pay. Then and only then are, are you going to have CON that, that has a chance of working because otherwise different little physician groups will just set up practices that will bleed the, the profitable lines of business from the hospital and they'll get stuck having to pay, having to charge the patients uh, who actually come to the hospital even more money to pay for the two thirds who aren't paying for the full uh, reimbursement cost of the services. So it, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. Uh, but hospitals are willing to be a part of the conversation. Uh, but here's the thing. What we know about government is government always works better when it incentivizes outcomes rather than forcing outcomes. And what we've learned from COVID is that insurers and providers and hospitals have developed uh, an unprecedented um, sense of collaboration and willingness to work with patients for better outcomes. And I think as long as the legislature is willing to include um, all the players in helping to create the solutions for the future, we'll get to a better place. Senator Kravick, you want to respond <clears throat> to some of the concerns that Tom raised? Um, yes, I, I love you, Tom. I love <laughs> you too, Joyce. <laughs> <laughs> We, uh, the bill that I sponsored actually did take care of most of the concerns that you just, uh, you just brought up. I'm aware of that. You're going to uh, have to have so many um, uh, pro bono cases, basically. They were going to have charitable care. Uh, we were requiring that they have so much. Uh, now, 24-7, they don't stay open, but most hospitals are open because of their emergency rooms. They don't necessarily schedule elective surgeries all 24-7. So uh, we may have to, you know, we may have to talk about that. But I'm looking forward to talking with you about it, as I always look forward to talking with you. But hopefully we'll get some um, some reform on certificate of need that's going to be good for North Carolina. Anyone else want to jump in on that topic before we move on to the next topic? Hearing none, let's talk uh, medical licensing for a moment. Uh, those issues seem to be another uh, frequent topic of conversation at the legislature, ranging from out-of-state providers being able to serve North Carolinians uh, to what medical providers with which level of uh, medical licensing can provide certain services. Uh, do you all see any major reforms that could be in the works or, or could be necessary next year? And uh, we'll start with uh, Representative Adcock on this. Well, thank you for that. Uh, I was hopeful that I would get this question. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I think as we are uh, entering an unprecedented time for uh, needs for financial assistance and having less money than we would want to have. We need to look at a couple of things when it comes to regulation. And the first is to decrease barriers to out-of-state 
licensed professionals who are entering practice in North Carolina. I think we can um, <clears throat> improve our processes on that, particularly a subgroup of these people are veterans and the spouses of veterans. <clears throat> if we want to increase the pool of providers in our state, there's a lot we can do in that space. But the other, you know, I think as I'm, as I'm entering a session that we know where the, the needs are going to be great and the finances are going to be <laughs> slimmer than usual, that we need to look at some regulations that currently tie the hands of licensed providers uh, and prevent them from providing the full amount of care that they're educated and certified and trained to do. Um, particular groups, if you want to, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, certified nurse midwives, pharmacists. I mean, I believe our state needs to deploy our entire workforce to its full extent. Um, and we can do this actually in a budget neutral way, because at a time when people are going to need uh, we need more money to, for education. We need to look at broadband. We need, there's so many things we need to spend money for. This is one of those things we can do that will increase our bandwidth for providers and actually be a budget neutral solution. Senator Kravik, any thoughts on uh, what uh, Representative Adcock just outlined, but the licensing issue as a whole? This is something she and I agree on completely. Um, several states have expanded the uh, uh, you don't even need to expand the scope of practice. Just allow providers to practice at their trained level. And um, we've, we've been talking about our rural areas and how um, how many how many new providers we need in those areas to take care of the needs of those citizens. <clears throat> Arizona did a, um, I guess you'd say, a pilot where they allowed uh, nurse practitioners to practice at their full authority. Uh, after five years, they had reported a 73% increase in providers in rural communities, 73% increase. So there are a lot of things we can do in the licensing arena. We've done a lot of that, uh, as Representative Adcock mentioned, for our military spouses. We've um, allowed, the, um, allowed them to be able to move through the system, to have reciprocity, um, to not have to jump through hoops to get licensed in North Carolina. And uh, there are a lot more things that we can do in that arena. So uh, Representative Adcock and I agree completely on this, and I'm looking forward to working with her on getting that, making that happen. Thank you, Senator. Can I just add to yeah. that? I appreciate um, the great collaborative work we've done on this. And I would just add that this is not a new idea. 23 states in the country and the District of Columbia have passed such legislation mm -hmm. uh, and some as long as 25 years ago. Arizona was one of those. Um, and not a single one that's ever passed this kind of legislation that allows advanced practice nurses, for example, to work within their full, uh, full licensure has ever gone back and and gone back to the old way of doing things. Right. So what they have learned is it serves their citizens well, and that's exactly why North Carolina should do it as well. Exactly. Sue Ann, I wanted to get you to, to jump in on this. I know there's been some concerns voiced by physicians in the past about unintended consequences with making some major licensing changing. Uh, do you see any sort of concerns that uh, should be considered as this issue comes up? Sure. Our members really believe that education and training are incredibly important in patient care. And I think we can all uh, rest assured that we want to see the best and the brightest of whatever uh, air specialty area that is when our family members are being seen by any particular provider. I do think that a, a value-driven healthcare system, like we're moving towards in Medicaid transformation and in the private market sector, is going to increase uh, the team-based setting that we think is so important and utilizing all members of the healthcare team effectively will be incentivized to do that even more so. Um, so I think that's really something important to note. But also uh, the Medical Society and the North Carolina Medical Board are hoping to introduce a interstate medical licensure compact bill that we think may help with some of these areas, particularly for our uh, military spouses, who may be moving. There are 30 states that have already signed on to this compact. We think it could also help with telehealth too. We're working closely with our physician specialty counterparts to make sure that they're comfortable and on board with this as a proposed solution. But we think uh, this could be something innovative to help 
uh, help us in this area and help increase access as well as telemedicine access. Tommy, you want to have the last word on this topic? Any uh, other thoughts that that uh, issue raises for you? I couldn't think of a thing to add that would be any better than what I've already heard. <laughs> All right. <laughs> We've got a, in the few minutes we've got left, uh, we've had some audience questions that were submitted to us ahead of the event, and a lot of these are topics that we've uh, actually been able to, to get to pretty much in depth. Uh, but there was one that I wanted to jump back to. I think we mentioned Medicaid transformation a little earlier in the hour, uh, but we had this quiz, uh, question from a, a pediatrician who says, uh, it's going to be extremely difficult for physicians to implement the Medicaid transformation change in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, obviously, it changes a lot for their um, business model and, and sort of insurance models. Uh, this uh, gentleman says, as a busy pa practicing pediatrician with a large Medicaid patient load, I would hope the General Assembly would consider delaying Medicaid transformation until at least January 1 of 2022. Any chance of that? Um, Senator Kravik, if you want to start. Um, Medicaid transformation has been delayed a couple of times already. Um, I don't see that happening. Um, you know, I, I certainly understand what he's saying. It's not going to be easy in the middle of a pandemic, but um, I don't see delaying it again. We have so many contracts are out there. These providers, um, based on uh, the go live date that we had before, they were losing millions of dollars every month. They set up the infrastructure. They were ready to go. Uh, they made a commitment to North Carolina that they were going to do this and they were ready. And then when we put on the delay, um, a lot of these providers were just bleeding for uh, for a, for a year now, more than a year. And um, I, I don't think we can um, I don't think it will be easy for um, that to be delayed again. It has been delayed a number of times. I understand we are in a pandemic and um, I get that. And it's really a difficult time for everyone, but I don't see transformation being delayed again, certainly not at the legislative level. Representative Adcock, uh, anything you're hearing on the House side or any concerns you may be hearing from the folks over at Health and Human Services about the, the current deadline, which is uh, coming up on us fast uh, in the middle of this coming summer? No, I haven't heard anything in specific, specifically. I would say that I know DHHS is committed to Medicaid transformation. They've done everything in their power to hit all the milestones on time. And they believe that this is the right thing for, uh, for the Medicaid program to transition to. And they will do their best to uh, meet all the deadlines. Sue Ann, are you hearing similar concerns from other providers or are a lot uh, having sort of a different perspective on how easy this transition is going to be able to navigate it from the provider perspective? Yeah, Colin, thanks. I, I think we all need to be reminded that Medicaid transformation is called Medicaid transformation, right? We are completely changing the way the Medicaid program works. Um, we think uh, for the better long term, again, because we're utilizing more team members, we're moving to a value driven system. But that comes along with a lot of challenges to our uh, physicians and other healthcare providers within our communities. I do want to brag on on our members in particular. North Carolina has one of the highest uh, physician Medicaid participation rates in the country. And I think that's great. And that is fantastic. And we want to make sure that we keep that moving forward into this transformation. But that doesn't discredit the fact that we're in a pandemic right now. And it is going to be incredibly challenging, like Senator Provick mentioned. Uh, but I think we will need to need to move forward so that we can get to those better health care outcomes that we believe will come along with moving to the managed care system. Tom, any concerns you're hearing from uh, some of your clients uh, around this particular topic and whether there's any changes that might need to be made going into the new year? Well, I think everybody agrees Medicaid transformation needs to happen, but I think we have to be careful about the amount of change we're asking people to absorb all at once, even before COVID there were massive disruptive changes in, in healthcare delivery. And so uh, insurers, I know Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, has spent $600 million it wasn't planning to on COVID related responses. And I'm sure the other insurers are in the same boat. Hospitals in many instances, uh, losing elective surgeries were losing some of their most profitable lines of business. And physicians and healthcare uh, providers have been hit the hardest. They've had to close down their practices, stop seeing patients. So we, we've got a we got to be careful that we don't ask uh, these three critical components uh, of our healthcare delivery system to absorb too much change too fast when they've just been hit by a body blow. Uh, I mean, a, a life altering event and a business altering event in the last six to eight months. So I think 
I agree with Cinder Cromick. It needs to happen. Uh, I think the pace of inflammation needs to be done in collaboration with the people with whom it is going to affect the most. All right. Well, I think that's about all the time we have for the Insiders 2021 Healthcare Policy Preview. Been a lot of really important topics we've got to, and you guys have had some really great insights on uh, on what we can expect on a whole host of issues uh, going into the new year. So thanks for all of our panelists for uh, their insights into this. And thanks to all of you out there for joining us today. I'm Colin Campbell with the NC Insider, and we hope to talk to you all soon. Stay safe out there. Keep your masks on and uh, have a great rest of your week.